0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Beth Macy, journalist and nonfiction author. Her books include Factory Man, True Vine, and Dopesick. She is the recipient of numerous journalism awards, including a Neiman Fellowship for Journalism at Harvard. Her newest book, Dopesick, a New York Times bestseller, chronicles the opioid crisis in central Appalachia. Macy focuses on the individuals in the midst of the epidemic, from doctors to prosecutors, addicts to drug dealers, and those who are mourning the overdoses of their addicted children and family members. Dope also dives into the companies and organizations that brought OxyContin, an opioid painkiller, to the market, Purdue Pharma and the FDA. More than 20 years ago, the privately owned Purdue Pharma brought oxycotton to the market with claims it was not addictive. Since that time, the drug has been the precursor for many of the heroin addicts in America. We began the discussion with Macy describing how Purdue Pharma brought oxycotton to the public in such large numbers.
1: Yeah, so they hired an army of sales reps and They gave the reps data they purchased from uh, like a prescribing database called IMS Health showing them which doctors in which communities already prescribed the most competing opioids. So those would have been the time-release opioids like Percocet, Vicodin, Lortab because their thinking was if docs are already prescribing a lot of these, they tended to be smaller um, dosage immediate uh, release. Uh, Oxycontin, there had never been Uh, an opioid as strong as it and they sent them out to these doctors that were already prescribing these tended to be in areas where there were high incidences of workplace injuries and distressed communities and they gave them this uh this pitch about oxycontin and the fda allowed them to make this squishy unscientific claim that because of it because of OxyContin's brand new 12-hour time release mechanism that made it, uh, it was believed to reduce abuse or, or addiction. And then they trumpeted that as truth using old data, you know, a 1980 letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine that didn't really apply in an outpatient setting. And they just kept changing that, Squishy, unscientific claim until it was heralded as a as a as a as a truth. It was like a I say in the book. It was like an old fashioned game of telephone gone terribly awry. And then they hired physicians, nurses, and uh, pharmacists, five thousand of them, to become paid speakers for the company. You know, they would go on these trips, they would wear Oxycontin-branded beach hats and go to Florida and Arizona, and they would learn how to then go back to their communities and convince other doctors that it was safe, that this time-release mechanism made it safe and that addiction was exquisitely rare and that if anyone showed up claiming to show symptoms of, quote, addiction, that just meant that they weren't getting enough of their drug and, and the doctors should prescribe them more. It was a scam and a national disgrace.
0: So the consequences of some of this is that you have all these people who start off in legitimate pain who are overprescribed these meds and they become addicts. And many of these addicts either stick to the pills and try to get them on the black market or turn to heroin because it's cheaper and easier to find. And then what you see are these people who legitimately started out in pain end up running out of drugs, needing more, needing more and more every day to get that feeling. So they're either chasing the drugs or they're chasing the heroin and they become maybe dealers themselves or addicts and they end up in jail or rehab or worse, they end up dead.
1: Exactly right. Like people you would never think of as, quote, drug dealers or involved in drugs. Like I'm thinking about the 70 something year old former low coal miner named Arnold Payne McCauley, who I asked his daughter, I said, what's your memory of your dad growing up? My memory of my dad is he worked. He worked in the coal mines during the day. And then he had this limes hauling, you know, kind of farm business that he did at night and on the weekends. And then he, um, he was a referee in the little town of Jonesville. Everybody knew him from refereeing their kids' ball games. And so this guy gets overprescribed Oxycontin and he, and, and, And he had been prescribed opioids before for for injuries in the coal mines. And he had always been able to get off them at the end, take them as needed. But the difference with OxyContin is it was so strong that he just couldn't get away from it. And so then he started stealing family heirlooms and pawning for drug money. You know, his daughter had to rescue his wife and take her back to Texas. Um, you know, just, it destroyed the whole family. He's in and out of jail. He's in and out of treatment centers. And then eventually police find his body in a field, his truck overturned and pills spread out before him and his head had been blown off. His daughter believed he was killed in a, a drug deal gone bad. I mean, like a 74 year old farmer, just Not what you would think of when you think of somebody mixed up in illicit drugs. And yet there he was, his sort of personality and brain completely hijacked by this drug.
0: I was wondering, what is the feeling that these people are chasing? I guess one of the things that I wanted to understand is, what is this feeling that is worth getting your head blown off in a field for at 74 years old?
1: There's several quotes that come to mind, and I haven't done heroin, so I I can't describe the feeling, but just from what people said, I mean, there was a farmer in Dr. Van Zee's practice who said, you know, that drug is my god. There was a researcher I interviewed who was working with heroin addicts in Baltimore in the 80s, and he said, heroin is my girlfriend. And what he meant was, heroin's more important than anything to me. My relationship is heroin. And I think of Tess, Henry, the young 28-year-old I I spent two and a half years with her, describing the first time she shot up. She wrote this in her journal that her mother gave to me after her death. Quote, I was in love with this drug. So it's that in the beginning. And then as the addiction progresses, it is this overarching fear of not wanting to be dope sick. But I think it's also that trying to chase that first, I was in love, that drug is my God, heroin is my girlfriend feeling. And, um, you know, I frankly don't know it because I haven't experienced it, but um, that's what they tell me.
0: Well, one of the things that your book does is you bring it down to the personal level. You know, you have to, because although it is compelling to see what these pharmaceutical companies are doing and have these anecdotes that kind of defy the imagination even. You bring it down to this community. And you just mentioned this one doctor, Dr. Van Zee. And he was an older sort of country doctor in Virginia who was taking care of so many people in this area that you're reporting from. Can you talk about him? And he he was so wise and, and very prescient.
1: Yeah, and very um, very dignified and humble and, and quiet, you know, he wasn't one of these shrill, loud people, tall, thin, looked like Abraham Lincoln, kind of a hippie, an old hippie, landed there after he went to Vanderbilt. He lands there because he wants to work in a situation as close to socialized medicine as possible, and he really wants to help. He wants to get back. He was the son of a Presbyterian minister. And so he lands there to work in the sliding scale federally qualified health clinic in the poorest region of America, in the poorest county in Virginia, right in the heart of central Appalachia called Lee County. And at the beginning, you know, he's just doing his job, and, you know, there's a lot of poverty, and the coal mines are starting to shut down almost right after he got there in the 70s. And he just wants to help the people and wants to give them access. But when this – he said before OxyContin came out, he had one or two or maybe three people who were drug dependent on his caseload per year. And then like now, it's pretty much almost his entire caseload. So he saw it immediately, and he starts calling them and very sort of, you know, firmly but not shrill – like writing them these pleading letters saying, please take it off the market until it can be reformulated to be abuse resistant. Because right away, users figured out an end run around the time release mechanism. They figured out how to get the whole euphoric rush in one moment, right? And that was what made it so dangerous. That's why kids had immunized from now ODing in the high school library. Because they figured out how to melt the coating off, crush it, and either snort it or inject it right away. And, you know, the company claimed they didn't know that until much later. And we know now that they did know earlier. But Dr. Benzie was writing them letters saying, my fear is that these rural distressed communities um, are sentinel areas, much like New York and San Francisco were in the early years of HIV and so prescient. And what he told me when I first met him in 2016, he said, when I wrote that, I thought, well, sure, nobody cares because it's a bunch of poor people in the mountains dying. But surely, when this epidemic hits the cities and suburbs, then people will pay attention. But of course, look how it look how people are are responding. Look how our governments responded to it. I was dead wrong about that too.
0: It's interesting because the FDA's role in this was pretty heavy. I mean, they are the ones that are supposed to protect the drug-taking communities from this happening. How did they fail? In what ways did they fail?
1: Well, the big one was they allowed this squishy claim that it was believed to reduce, unquote, the the risk of abuse and addiction uh, because of this 12-hour time release mechanism. The medical officer that signed off on that was a guy named Curtis Wright, back in late 1995, and two years later, he was working for Purdue Pharma, period. When they did finally reformulate it in uh, 2010, the FDA uh, ever-obliging blocked generic competition for them. Um, And then when it was reformulated, uh, many experts believe that was only because the patent was set to expire in 2013. Now the company disputes that. You know, clearly they, always got what they wanted with the FDA.
0: It was shocking to see the FDA's compliance with this and acquiescence to this. And for me, the most striking moment in the book was you had this woman, Janine, and she lost her son, Bobby, and she would go around and tell the story publicly. And she took her 15-year-old daughter to urgent care for a sprained thumb, and she got a prescription for 25 days of
1: oxycodone. And Janine went off, like she called, she happened to know the head of emergency care and she called him, she said, what's going on? And um, he said, oh, this is a doctor that hasn't gotten the memo. And, you know, doctors are still prescribing. I just read the figure the other day. It's something like it's between 40 to 60% too many painkillers after surgery. I had an outpatient surgery last year. They sent me home with 15 oxycodone. I only needed two. And I had asked a friend of mine who's a surgeon, why do you prescribe so many when you know people aren't going to take that many? And he just looked at me and spoke truth, and he said, because we don't want to be bothered on the weekends. Like, if we only sent you home with two, what if you needed five? Then you're going to have to call us again, you know? And, and they didn't want to be bothered. I'm sorry. You need to be bothered. You helped, you helped get us into this. You need to help get us out. The publishing industry is a system.
0: Books are mirrors in people's experiences.
1: And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial.
0: She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired.
1: We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't world-proof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So as a writer, I'm sure, you know, before you even started this, you know, put your pen to paper, there'd been stories about this crisis for a long time. So how did you begin to sort of wrap your head around this, decide you want to do it? and then create some kind of plan when there's so much information.
1: Oh yeah, that was that was the real challenge. I have this product called Wizard Wall. It's a like a movable it looks like a roll of white wrapping paper. And I basically like wallpapered my entire office with it. And I just started making phone calls at the beginning. So I had written this series in 2012 about heroin when it landed in our upper middle class suburbs. Three part series on heroin, and I had these two families that I had spotlighted in that, and I had been following them ever since. Um, so I had this, you know, pretty impressive stack of notes on how it landed in our city and our suburbs. So I knew that story, and I knew the prosecutors involved, and I knew I could go back to them and kind of, kind of find out what's going on now. So, I sort of reread through those notes, made a list of all the people I was going to contact again. And then I knew that Oxycontin was kind of what had seeded this. So, I went back to those stories. You know, there was a book written by Barry Meyer in 2003 called Painkiller. I read that really carefully, I called Barry Meyer up. I talked to the Roanoke Times reporter who covered Oxycontin in the coal fields and who also covered the settlement in 2007. He told me exactly to call it Van Zee, Sister Beth, you know, the first cop who saw Oxycontin being um, uh, illicitly diverted. He, you know, he gave me all the names of the people to call because he had interviewed them 15, 20 years ago, and you know, they're all still dealing with this, and um, and. You know, in journalism, we're not very good at going back to people and saying, How are you doing now? You know, as a rule, I noticed that when I was writing Factory Man. You know, nobody does the aftermath story. And and that's kind of my MO. You know, I like to go back in time, but not that much time and and, and look at sort of the what were the big headlines then and how are people doing now? Because I saw that those two stories were connected, OxyContin in the coalfields, heroin in the cities and suburbs. And then when I was doing some of that early reporting, going back to people, I went back to this prosecutor who had worked on the Spencer Mumpower case, the Hidden Valley portion of the story. And he told me about this case about Ronnie Jones and this huge heroin ring. They had just completed all the prosecutions of 84 people were sentenced on state and federal charges. And... This was, this was four hours in the other direction, up in a kind of a nice little farm town called Woodstock. I mean, just not the last place you would expect the biggest heroin ring in Virginia to be, this little town of a couple thousand people, right? So he starts telling me about this, and he actually pulls out this chart in his office of all the 84 people with Ronnie Jones at the top, and some of the names on the bottom of the pyramid are crossed out because they've died of overdose deaths. And he, in the, at the top of the chart is this word FUBI, F-U-B-I, and he won't tell me what it stands for. And I keep circling back to it in the interview. And uh, finally he tells me that he's trying to convert uh, somebody they have in jail uh, for, for dealing. He's trying to get him to be a confidential informant. He's trying to get him to squeal on where he gets his heroin from in the ring. He's trying to build out that chart. And he and the ATF agent are questioning this guy. And they're like, we know you're involved in this ring. We're investigating. We know you are. And if you don't tell us, we're going to come back and we're going to bring so many more charges. And the, um, and the guy in jail, his name's Keith Marshall, he goes, fuck you, bring it. And that's, that became F-U-B-I. It was their informal name for the case. But when he said that, like the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And then, so on my whiteboard that I told you about, I had kind of all my sources written for the Coalfield section, all my sources written down in another section on the wall for the sort of the Roanoke suburban city story. And then I started following this fooby story and, you know, I just have this experience when something makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck, it's good stuff. Right. Like, so I started tracking down different people involved in that ring. I, I found out who, you know, I've, I made a request to interview Ronnie Jens in prison. Um, started, I've, you know, I found the mother whose son Jesse had died because of the drugs Ronnie had brought to the town. And, you know, she's this so plaintively asked me to find out why her only son is dead and she thought it was just Bill's. How does he end up dead on someone else's bathroom floor? And that's how I decided to begin the whole thing.
0: Right. You started the book sort of with this two themes. One was, you know, this mother who wanted to find out how did her son die of this? And he was one of the ones in the place that you mentioned, Hidden Valley, which was a wealthier area. And because you looked at rural and wealthy use of this. And the other was Ronnie Jones, who was a dealer. He was a big dealer in terms of how much uh, ground he was covering and how much he was supplying to. But he was still, you know, in this small rural America. But you followed his case. Tell us a little bit about him.
1: Yeah, so he was a twice convicted drug dealer who landed in um, this kind of, I call it idyllic farm town. It was, again, one of these areas where op- opioids hadn't been overprescribed because, you know, it was a healthier community. And and that, and that was interesting, too. Um, heroin was only beginning to land there. Pe- kids were starting, who had gotten addicted to pills, were starting to drive to Baltimore, which was pretty close, like 90 minutes away, and bring um, heroin back. But Ronnie um, quickly realized after he got, he's finished his sentence, he wanted to stay there. He He told me he thought, He'd be better off there. He he would stay out of trouble. It was a, it was kind of like he goes. People wave to you when you when you're driving down the country roads here. He thought it'd be nice, but nobody would hire him for work. He tried to set up a, sh- a computer repair business, which he had gotten trained during prison. He had gotten a certificate. Nobody would rent him space. He was convinced it was because he was black. And he, I'm sure he's right about that. And um, so then he goes back to dealing crack and marijuana, which he had dealt before, and. And somebody points out to him, well, remember in the break room of George's Chicken, where we worked, people were using pills. Pills are getting harder to get. Pills are getting more expensive. I know somebody that can help you get a connect, uh, a, a, a real supply from Harlem. So Ronnie starts Ronnie and this other dealer working out, you know, kind of an adjacent area closer to D.C. They have this connection in Harlem and they start bringing heroin in in bulk to this small town. And I mean, that was just interesting narratively because you had these cultures clashing, right? You had these kind of big city drug dealers, possibly with cartel connections, landing in this small rural community in a chicken plant where they're interfacing with, you know, young women, Hispanic migrant workers. I just saw a lot of potential for storytelling there. And it was so emblematic of just how the system the prison system was designed to get Ronnie back, right? Because, you know, he's like one of 12, prob- one of 100 probationers, his probation officer can't keep up with them. I mean, she admitted that to me. And he just is going about bringing massive amounts to heroin to this small town. And almost overnight, the town goes from a handful of known heroin users to hundreds. And, you know, that's a bit of an exaggeration. That's the way the police described it to me. You know, Ronnie had a very different story to tell you know, what he said about the system being designed for you to come back. It's exactly true. There he is now sitting there for 23 years. Smart guy, a flawed guy. Sure. He may very well die in prison.
0: The reason he ended up in this town was it was part of a, it wasn't like a work release, but they they sort of sent him to work in this chicken factory in this area.
1: ICE had raided and sent all the illegal immigrants away, undocumented immigrants. And then they then he needed workers, so they had to truck in um, prisoners, you know, nonviolent vendors. And so then they're working alongside the poor people in the community that don't haven't gone to college. And, you know, it's just this sort of becomes this toxic blend. But that George's chicken had had so many problems before Ronnie showed up. I mean, they had a meth ring that they were they were smuggling out ingredients for meth from the chicken plant roof with using pulleys and walkie-talkies and, you know, like this really pretty elaborate system and um, just problem after problem, overdoses in the parking lot. One of the policemen I interviewed joked, you know, forget building a wall uh, between Texas and Mexico. We need a wall around Georgia's chicken. So it, I mean, it became a real problem, but when you look at it on paper, it's like, it's a program designed to help People in prison get work skills. It sounds like a good thing, but it wasn't a good thing for that community.
0: So once you've gone down this path where a community is getting addicted, you have to help them. So, you know, a lot of them who can afford it, which is not everyone, might go to rehab. But there's even trouble with the rehab, whether it's the rehab facility or Suboxone. And Suboxone is a drug that helps you get off the opioid, but in itself, it has opioid ingredients. Can you talk a little bit about trying to get people off of this?
1: I mean, the hard truth is that it takes the average heroin-addicted person eight years and four to five treatment attempts just to achieve one year of sobriety. I mean, that, that statistic killed me. That's like, oh my God, that was what I was seeing playing out. Why can't these people who have everything going for them, why can't Tess Henry, who had... Uh, very smart, well educated parents, you know, working in the medical field, a doctor and a nurse for mom and dad. Uh, why can't she get off of this drug? Well, it's so hard for people to get off of it. And part of the problem is because rehab centers that, you know, people will get second mortgages and whatnot to send their kids off to these rehab centers. Most of the rehab centers, more than half in this country, don't allow medication-assisted treatment, which is Suboxone or Methadone. Um, there's one other kind, um, which study after study shows is the best way to prevent overdose and relapse and, and overdose death. I mean, the science is super clear on that. There's no one in the scientific world who believes that's not the answer to this. But the rehabs grew out of, you know, AA and 12 steps and NA. And um, many simply believe that giving people a maintenance drug like suboxone and methadone is treating one drug with another drug. And it just sort of overlooks this this dope sick factor it's with alcohol you're not going to get dope sick right these people are trying to avoid being dope sick and they need i've just seen them i've seen story after story they can't get off of it without the help of these these anti-craving medications mat medication assisted treatment which is a weak opioid itself and it has a a ceiling blocker in it so if they take heroin on top of it they're not going to feel it they're just going to It's going to staunch their cravings. And, um, and, and what you see in people that are using it correctly with counseling and social supports, you see them start to get like a glimmer of hope. Oh, maybe I don't have to live my life homeless and prostituting. Oh, maybe I can get a job again. Maybe I can get my kids back. Uh, Maybe I can even get my nursing degree, et cetera, et cetera. And they start to have a little bit of hope. And, but there's so much stigma out there. Um, a lot of it amplified by the, the abstinence-only group. And to me, I think, I've come to think that it's the number one barrier to turning back this epidemic, the bias against MAT.
0: So how did it impact you, writing this, to see people not make it?
1: It was really hard. I mean, it's nothing compared to the losses the families themselves were feeling, right? I don't want to make myself sound like some martyr, but, you know, some, some of the people I met died before I even had a chance to type up my notes, my interview notes with them. And then I'd go back and listen to them after I learned that they had killed themselves because they had relapsed and they were, knew their wife was going to leave them now or, or things of that nature. And just, just so heartbreaking people with so much potential. Everybody ends up the same way in this, which is homeless and prostituting and in within the, the the people that I followed. And that was clear even from the early days of this with OxyContin out in the rural areas. They all end up, the poor kids in Roanoke and the wealthy kids in Roanoke that get addicted to this drug, they all end up couch surfing in the same poor neighborhood or living homeless in the same poor neighborhood of our city. And that's happening you know, all over America. And um, one of the ways I coped with it, just the the sheer you know, the exhausting and depressing nature of it, it was really the only way I thought I could live in the material for two and a half years, is I focus on the people who are fighting back. My, my friend, Roland Lazenby, who's a writer, he said, he quoted Mr. Rogers to me, he said, find the helpers. And so that's what I did. That's why you have me focusing on Banzi in the beginning. Um, then I'm focusing you know, from Roanoke on these women who are trying to divert people from jail and into treatment, but losing a lot, right? Occasionally winning, but largely losing a lot. And then in the Woodstock area, you have sort of the cops fighting back and trying to trying to put Ronnie Jones in the ring behind bars. And, and, and they have their own kind of, everybody has their own motivations. And they're not all perfect people, but they're really trying. And so I'm just hoping to show that. And I think because I have these moments of light, I have the ATF agent who's working so hard, you know, that his kids don't even barely recognize him and think, you know, I remember the scene where he's working, you know, out of this unmarked house where they're putting this ring together and his four-year-old, his mom, wife brings the four-year-old to visit and, and she says, this is where you live now, Daddy? Is this where you live? And he's just like, oh, my God, I got to get another job. So these people are heroic, too. These first responders, these drug court judges, I watch their hair go from salt and pepper to white over the course of reporting the book. People are really worn out by this epidemic.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Sure. One of my favorite books is um, Tracy Kidder's Mountains Upon Mountains. What I like about... His work is—he seems to know where to insert himself in a way that illuminates whatever he's writing about. And I also like books that are about one person, haven't haven't just written a book about uh, a whole bunch of people. Uh, you know, my first book, Factory Man, was, was mainly around one main character. It had lots of other people in it, but um, I sort of pine for for that to do that kind of book again. You know, where you're just really studying one person as it relates to a big issue. And in, in this case, you know. Farmer's work in Haiti. And um, I think he's just such a master of knowing when to include himself in the story and knowing when not. So I'll read a a brief passage from the beginning of Mountains Beyond Mountains. And this is where he first met um, Paul Farmer. He meets him at a fancy restaurant with cloth napkins and good wine, which Farmer seemed to thoroughly enjoy. He struck me as incredibly happy with his life. I tried to understand how a Harvard-trained MD who could have enjoyed a successful full-time private practice in a comfortable home in a boston suburb preferred to spend most of his life with the forgotten poor at one point i was sure he was no what I, I was sure he knew what i was thinking as if others had asked him the same question i don't know why everybody isn't excited about it he suddenly responded meaning his work in haiti he smiled a glow lighting his face that moment if not the whole evening affected me quite strongly like a welcome gladly given one you didn't have to earn but after dinner I found myself keeping a distance from Paul Farmer. Mainly, I came to realize, because his optimism and happiness made me slightly uneasy. I wondered how anyone could give himself so selflessly to a forsaken land, refusing to be defeated by the considerable odds against him. So, you know, he uses himself sort of as a character reflecting back, but he's kind of speaking for the reader at the same time. He's able to kind of add... um, another layer of meaning and you're able to follow the story more easily. And that's kind of what I'm always striving for. Like, especially in a book like dope sick where there are so many different threads. I'm the one constant in the book, right? Like you see me traveling all up and down the heroin highway, like, like following the same path with the drugs. And and so I'm sort of the organizational steady, if you will. Um, But I try not to insert myself too much. And I always, especially when I was writing Factory Man, which is a similar book about one person, largely, but a much bigger issue, um, globalization, um, tried to insert myself when there were times when I realized, like, I saw what was going on more than anybody else I interviewed, you know, at times, I truly had spent so much time with him that I was the expert. And so then I would kind of work myself into a scene.
0: Can you read a passage from your book, maybe something that was tricky or challenging or yeah. something that you liked?
1: Yeah, so I have a great editor on this book. Uh, new editor, first time working with her, and um, really uh, tough <laughs> in a good way. So her big edit, when she turned the uh, my first edit back to me, she said, I want you to start with your visit to the prison to see Ronnie Jones. And that, in the first draft, didn't come until chapter 13. And now she wants me that to be the prologue. So I asked my earlier prologue. And I tried to end with this moment where Ronnie Jones and I are sitting down together. And I tried to make it really cinematic, so that even though I wasn't going to come back to this moment for 12 more chapters, you would remember it. But I also had to like set up those other three storylines in the pro prologue, right? So I'm using this device of my drive to prison to see Ronnie, but I'm also trying to seed in those other three stories, or those other two stories, right? So my husband said, well, what were you seeing as you were driving to West Virginia? And I was like, oh, all he had to do was ask me that question. And then suddenly it sort of brought it alive, what I could write about in the prologue up to that moment where I sit down with Ronnie and he's kind of glaring at me, what's going to come next, right? So I'll read you. This is sort of near the end of the prologue. To reach Ronnie Jones, I head north on the nearest heroin highway, I-81. I travel roughly the same path in my car, only in reverse that Jones's drugs did by bus. His heroin camouflaged inside Pringles cans and plastic Walmart bags on the floor beside him or his hired drug runners. On the suburban outskirts of Roanoke, I drive near the upper middle-class subdivision of Hidden Valley, where a young woman I've been following for a year named Tess Henry was once a straight-A student and basketball star. At the moment, she's AWOL. Her mother and I have no idea where she is, although sometimes we catch glimpses of her on our cell phones, a Facebook exchange between Tess and one of her heroin dealers, or a prostitution ad through which Tess will fund her next fix. I passed Ginger's Jewelry, the high end store where parents of the addicted still drive from two hours away simply because they can think of nowhere else to turn. They've read about Ginger's imprisoned son in the newspaper, and they want to ask her how to handle the pitfalls of raising an addicted child. Up the Shenandoah Valley on the interstate, I passed New Market and think not of the men who fought in the famous eighteen sixty four Civil War battle, but of the women who grew poppies for the benefit of wounded soldiers, harvesting morphine from the dried juice inside the seed pods. Three decades later, the German elixir peddlers at Bayer Laboratories would stock America's drugstore with a brand new version of that same molecule, a pill marketed as both a cough remedy and a cure for the nation's soaring morphine epidemic known as morphinism, or soldier's disease. Its label looked like an amusement advertisement you might have seen on a circus poster, a word derived from the German for heroic and bracketed by a swirling ribbon frame, heroin. It was sold widely from drugstore counters, no prescription necessary, not only for veterans but also for women with menstrual cramps and and babies with hiccups. Outside Woodstock, I passed George's Chicken, the poultry processing plant where Ronnie Jones first arrived to work in a Department of Corrections work-release program clad in prison issue khakis. I passed the house nearby where a cop I know spent days, nights, and weekends crouched under a bedroom window surveilling Jones and his co-workers from behind binoculars a fraction of the man hours the government invested in putting members of Jones's heroin ring behind bars. And then so on, you know, I, then I describe you know, driving past the distressed towns on the way to the prison in West Virginia. So what I'm doing is just trying to see these stories I'm going to be telling you and to work in some of that history too. And that's, that's kind of Tracy Kidder's MO. It's, it's what J Anthony Lucas does in common ground. He's, he's always working in history you know, I'm, I'm, I'm digressing uh, where appropriate, but not for too long, because I'm trying to keep that narrative thread steady and keep keep the reader interested in turning the page. Where do you write? I write at my home um, in Roanoke, Virginia. In uh, you know, we're empty nesters, newly empty nesters. And I write in uh, my kid's old bedroom, which I converted into an office. It's kind of the biggest bedroom, and I've got a nice desk overlooking the windows, and I've got my wizard wall and my whiteboards all around me, and um, bookshelves and a chair that I like to edit in, a nice comfortable chair, a nice light, and a rug where I do yoga when I want to take a break.
0: <laughs> what do you do and where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I try to exercise every day. I my routine is I get up in the morning, and I, I read the New York Times, and I read our local paper, and then I go outside. I have a nice garden with, a like, a fish pond that has a fountain on it, and I, I will do yoga out there when the weather's nice. And, and then I write. I just sit my butt in my chair, and I write, and oftentimes I, my husband will bring me lunch, and I just keep writing. And then I try to do some, like, Cardio exercise at the end of the day. And I prefer to, there's a mountain in the middle of our city called Mill Mountain. It's a public park and it's, there's like five different trails on it. And then I get a good workout and I get out in nature and that is very, um, just kind of restorative. Uh, I ride my bike too, but I prefer to walk the mountain.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I used to show my work more when I was first starting out in books. Um, my husband read everything I wrote. I don't, don't do it as much anymore unless i'm having a problem then we'll talk out a problem i'm having over dinner i love this sort of tell him about interviews because like when i tell him something and like you wouldn't believe what dr van z just said today he told me about this letter he wrote purdue and and if i'm getting really excited or the hair's standing up on the back of my neck or i'm telling about a woman who is on Suboxone, but she doesn't want me to use her name because she's still so ashamed even though she's doing well and she's getting her nursing degree. And I'll start to choke up. Like I'll realize that that should be in the book. You know what I mean? This is like sort of a a story filter for me when I'm kind of mirroring back what I'm learning to my husband, you know, who I trust. And he's a smart reader and he's a really good editor. And then when I'm stuck on a, a craft thing, I have Certain friends who are writers that I will run by um, Andrea Pitzer, who was the founding editor of Neiman Storyboard. You might be familiar with that. She's really good at narrative structure and helped me figure out how to make that prologue work that I just read from. And um, and then I have lots of friends that I have another friend who covers the opioid epidemic from Boston at WBR. Her name's Martha Bevinger. She's one of my best friends. She helped me uh, with a lot of the research and kind of what was happening around harm reduction in Boston and introduced me to people up there. She actually went on some of the interviews with me and, you know, just made it much easier for me to have access to some of the world's foremost thinkers on this, including, you know, Harvard researchers and people doing really cutting edge things in harm reduction. Cause even though those weren't happening in the communities that I was writing about, alas, I needed that to be in the book so I could know what the rest of the country should be striving for, you know, with some solutions, because they really are beginning to turn um, some of those overdose numbers down.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: (laughs) Cried. (laughs) I interviewed um, a poet once. She was a poet laureate of Virginia. She's this hilarious woman named Lou Crabtree. She uh, She was discovered late in life by the writer Lee Smith in her first book of Uh, poems were published with great criticism and, um, you know, raves and she became the poet laureate of our state. And then her second book was rejected. And I said, what did you do Lou when you got the rejection letter? She said, I took off all my clothes and I went outside and I rolled in the snow. I thought that's a good response to rejection. (laughs) I, I mean, I've had some really mean rejections. I almost anything I've gotten, I've been rejected at first. So like the first time I got the Nieman Fellowship, I was rejected. I just kept applying. This first time I wrote a book proposal, that was rejected, I couldn't get an agent. I just kept trying. And meanwhile, I kept realizing that the thing that jazzed me about my work was making these connections in my community. I mean, I really love interviewing people. I love finding out things that people don't yet know. And then knowing that I have the power to go back in you know my kids former bedroom and tell people something they don't know but that i've seen i have this like you know it's just a it's a license to be curious a license to be nosy a license to put story together where people might not have seen a story before and to bring attention to these you know i i, I always say i write about outsiders and underdogs and untold stories and bring them to life and what is your favorite word I couldn't come up with a favorite word but I did come up with a favorite piece of punctuation would that be acceptable? Sure. The dash. And I love the dash. I overuse the dash, but overusing the dash, especially when I'm writing a, a really complicated like history section or I'm writing about science which doesn't come easy to me or anything involving like lots of sources, you know, summary work can sometimes be like the hardest kind of writing you're taking Ten different sources, and you've got to get it down into one paragraph or two paragraphs, right? That's really hard thinking and writing. And sometimes I'll use the dash as just an easy way to finish a sentence, and then I'll go back later. You know, Anne Lamott talks about writing shitty first drafts. I'll go back later and try to reduce the number of dashes. But sometimes I can't get to that thought unless I first allow myself this um, the use of the dash.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Beth Macy, author of Dopesick. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.